It's one of the great existential questions. Are you living for 70 years or are you living the same year 70 times? I mean, writers and creators face it too. Am I writing many books or am I writing the same book many times? The quote unquote best answer seems obvious. You know, do variety, don't live the same year 70 times. But I'm not sure the answer is always clear cut. Malcolm Gladwell made popular a study that showed the difference between Picasso and Cezanne. Picasso had many phases, blue, pink, cubist, and more. Cezanne painted a bowl of apples, and then the Mont Saint-Victoire, and then another bowl of apples, and then another Mont Saint-Victoire. And Cezanne and Picasso, they're both pretty great artists. There's deep, and there's wide. And it's an eternal rhythm. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Now, Jeff Dyer is a writer, a real writer. He's the award-winning author of four novels, as well as numerous nonfiction titles on D.H. Lawrence, on understanding photography, on yoga, and there's more. I'll tell you about those in a moment. But when he attended university, he wanted to learn how to write options were limited. There weren't any creative writing options available. You just did English. That is to say, you read everything from Beowulf through to Beckett in sort of chronological order, practically. You know, Beowulf to Beckett, that's a pretty solid foundation. And I've actually read Beowulf and I've read Beckett, but boy, there's a whole lot of stuff in the middle I haven't read. Um, I've got some gaps. And honestly, not just the middle. I mean, Beckett's works are kind of post-World War II. And let's face it, the 1970s were already half a century ago. So if you love reading, you want to keep going. You don't want to stop at Beckett. And that was the same for Jeff as well. So I was reading books as soon as they came out in paperback. Uh, And then I was so up to date that I was kind of getting impatient to read the hardbacks. And also, as I read reviews of the books, I started to think, God, you know, actually, I know quite a lot about this. I'd like to write some book reviews. He started small at the alternative London magazine City Limits, and then these book reviews grew longer and more nuanced and actually, like his reading, began to diversify. And then there was this moment, that moment when Jeff decided to write the books, not just read or review them. So, I mean, that makes it sound straightforward, but I think the unusual thing about my my trajectory, my lack of trajectory, really, is that the books have been so different to each other, uh, both in terms of subject matter and form, that has really been almost an object lesson in how not to have a career. I mean, this is really how not to build up a, a, a brand identity. So I've already mentioned D.H. Lawrence and photography and yoga. So add to that subject list, aviation, a Beowulf adaption, the art of appearing, and wait, there's more. You know, I'd write one book which appealed to a certain sector of the population. So I wrote a book about jazz. And so I guess then I had a sort of following among jazzers. But then I think the next book was a book about the First World War, um, which was really of interest to very few of the the, the people who'd read the <laughs> jazz book. Right, and so. then I guess I just continued like that, shedding whatever audience I'd built up from the previous <laughs> book until at about book number seven, uh, there was this sort of 
yeah, this kind of realization, wow, these books are all so different, but they've got this strange thing in common. They're all by this one person. Whereupon right. then a sort of um, um, a brand, ident- an identity, something cohesive about the books did begin to, uh, to, to become apparent. And what do you feel is at the heart of that brand identity? Um, yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think it's, um, do you know, I think in a way I've just continued being what I was at university. I've ended, ended up being a kind of perpetual student. Yeah. Um, that is to say, um, there's been a subject that I've been passionate about and I've been interested in trying to find out why it was that a given thing moved me so much why you know why did i love jazz so much what was it about it and since i know nothing about music writing the book about jazz was a way of finding out about it and then skipping ahead a few years you know i was very interested in photography so i decided that a way of learning really getting to grips with the tradition, the history of photography, was to write a book about it because I'm absolutely convinced that there's no better way of learning about a subject than writing yeah. a book about it. And I've just continued like that. But I guess the key thing is that whereas one's education or certainly the educational process I was part of tended towards greater and greater specialism. So I did right. something like eight O levels, three A levels, then I did English at university. Yeah. And at that point I jumped ship. I was not going to, you know, embark on the <laughs> kind of real kind of specialism of a PhD. You know, I found right. that my interests from about the age of twenty two onwards, instead of narrowing, were becoming wider and wider. So um, you know, I felt like at some point I developed this kind of thing that, oh, well, yeah, this writing life is a way of yeah. uh, enabling you to continue pursuing your interests in a very sort of haphazard, amateurish uh, <laughs> way and certainly something which was without any kind of specialism. Yeah. I heard um, I, I, I lived in a house once at Oxford where there were 15 people doing PhDs and the uh, the mantra there was knowing more and more about less and less until you knew everything about nothing. <laughs> <laughs> That's a brilliant summing yeah. up, Michael. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I know your love of photography and your your learned expertise around how to look at a photograph. Uh, I'm wondering how underst- how that visual uh, discipline has influenced how you think about writing. Mm. Yeah. Do you know, the first um, way in which I used photographs really was uh, when writing the jazz book. And there's a lot of photographs of jazz musicians. And at that point, I think I was using these pictures because, I mean, it's quite an obvious thing, really. A, a photograph depicts a split second. Yeah. But then and, and it has no narrative ability, as Gary Winogrand, the photographer, said. A, photogra- a photograph has no narrative ability, but it has such enormous narrative potential. Mm. So that split second, as it were, you look to the left of the frame and you might get a suggestion of what may have happened in the seconds or minutes leading up to the moment when the photograph was taken and you go off to the right of the photograph and there's a suggestion of what might be about to happen. And so right from the start, I was using photographs 
as, I mean, first of all, I was using them, looking at them entirely of what they depicted, not who they were by. That was a, right. an understanding that came later. As a, yeah, as just something so saturated in narrative potential. And of course, then, I mean, that's, a, uh, that, that's I mean, th- then you're into the realm of, of writing, of thinking, okay, after, after this, what then? It's a form, it's my particular version of, of sort of page turningness. Right. Um, And then only later did I realize, I mean, I can give a concrete example of this. You know, when I was young, I was obsessed with with D.H. Lawrence, uh, about Mm -hmm. whom I wrote a crazy book later on. And I had this picture on my bedroom wall in the same way that years later, somebody would have had a picture of David Beckham or Beyonce (laughs) or something on there. I had this picture of uh, D.H. Lawrence on my bedroom wall. And that's what it was. It was a picture of D.H. Lawrence. Only many years later did I realize that this picture wasn't just a picture of D.H. Lawrence. It was right. also a picture by Edward Weston, uh-huh. who is every bit as important in the history of photography as Lawrence yes. is in the history of the novel. So then, I mean, these things that I'd been looking at became doubly important. Mm. And it seems to me that's sort of a crucial question about, you know, how you approach photography. You know, is it a question of what of or is it who by? Yeah. And that's the that to put it crudely, that's the question I deal with in my history of photography, the ongoing moment. What have you had to unlearn to become mm. a better writer? Yeah, uh, another another great uh, great question. Um, one of the big influences on me was John Berger, and I think we'll probably end up coming back to him later in the conversation. So all I'll say for now is that when I was, Berger is a great writer, a wonderful person, but but also I think it's fair to say a fairly humorless one. And I think it took me quite a while to um, not escape from, but to leave that behind. And I really feel now at the age of 64, in the last 15 years, I've become a really funny writer. So um, uh, I guess escaping from this idea not of seriousness because i want to be a serious writer too but escaping from this opposition between funny and serious and it seems to me you can be funny and serious at the same Mm. time so escaping from that false distinction was important and also i think it's this um uh quite early on this was an easy thing to escape from from uh really having any desire to write anything of uh, uh, to really having no sort of freeing myself from any urge to be some sort of academic really and this uh, right. this idea of developing a, a sort of personal voice and people say about my books you know that I feature in them a lot and sometimes I do as this I'm there as a participant this sort of lanky mm-hmm. sort of you know figure and there's lots of sort of slapstick like that but I think increasingly what's important is not my physical manifestation in the book, but this idea of my consciousness, which is manifest both at the big level of, you know, my take on the yeah. world, but also at the most microscopic level, at the level of syntax and sentences. And the idea yeah. that you can sort of really saturate a book with your individual consciousness and it's a note that I make to myself in nearly all the sort of encouraging note in, in the notebooks that I keep while I'm writing a book right. as a way of encouraging myself. I'm always saying, remember, write the book that only you can write. Mm. 
Mm. You, you know, we talk about as writers, you know, finding our voice and finding that kind of that tone and that way of dancing with words and structure that feels like a unique expression. Um, and sometimes people collapse that into the phrase of like being authentic. Mm. But it always feels to me a very learned experience to get back to some sense of distinct expression of who you are. Uh, I'm wondering how you walk the line between a learned discipline mm. and uh, an expression of, uh, of an essence of who you are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you've put it so well yourself. I mean, yeah, I mean, this... Uh... This idea of authenticity is uh, is famously loaded, and when one talks about going to a restaurant where they serve authentic whatever you know food from this or that part of the world, and you know that can be nice, but you know I'm quite happy with totally inauthentic uh, <laughs> versions of uh, whatever cuisine it was, and sometimes yes. that that represents an improvement. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, in in my case, I mean, yeah, I think I've I've as it were ended up being a very original writer. There's only mm. one of me, a source of great relief to some readers. Um, now, how did I become this very original writer? By being incredibly susceptible to influences, really. So when I was I in my you know, early 20s, you know, I'd be absorbing, you know, I'd be enthralled to Roland Barthes one week, Joseph mm. Brodsky the next. Right. And you know, I'd try really hard to write like Roland Barthes, but it was funny. It was, uh, it never quite worked. There was always a sort of residue of me when I was trying to write like Roland Barthes. Anyway, so, uh, and it's not like those influences stopped at the age of 25, whereupon I stopped trying to be like other people and became like myself. You know, I can think of more recent influences, Rebecca West, Annie Dillard. And mm. so the thing is, it's this... Um, thing of absorbing your influences is is constant but um the way that you end up with an original voice it seems to me is by virtue of both the sum total of your influences and crucially your failure to adequately um, <laughs> imitate them and we can think of you know i saw that became conscious of this in in jazz you know where so often in the trumpet, you know, people would end up with their distinctive sound. A distinctive sound is so important in jazz. And yeah. that distinctive sound would invariably emerge from somebody's inability to adequately emulate whoever their their hero was. Right. Right. That's a wonderful way of putting it. I've never thought of it like that before. Um, Jeff, what book have you chosen for us? Yeah, I was uh, uh, so delighted to be invited on this show. And the book I've chosen is a, a book by somebody, Raymond Williams, who means an enormous amount to me. And uh, I've chosen his his book, The Country and the City. Perfect. How did how did you, this book come into your life? Yeah. So um, I did uh, I did English at Oxford. Mm -hmm. uh, I was born in 1958. Uh, grew up in a in a house without books, and. Uh, um, then, uh, I don't know, I mean, I think I probably do need to give a bit of background to this. But, yeah. uh, in, in Britain, in England at that time, there was this crucial life-defining thing that happened when you were 11. You took the 11 plus, this exam. And the purpose of this was really to ensure a supply of, uh, of sort of workers to, to the factories, you know, people who mm -hmm. would be, uh, you know, uh, they'd go on to secondary school 
and then just get ready for apprenticeships or whatever it was. So at the age of 11, you know, that's the thing that determines your life. But part of that deal was that if you passed the 11 plus, you uh, a, a percentage of people would go to a grammar school. Uh, where the you know the uh, the a- academic educational expectations were much higher, right. and it happened that in my town there was a a famously good grammar school. So anyway, the age of eleven, I passed the eleven plus, uh, and unlike so many of my friends who went on to the secondary school, I go on to this grammar school, uh, and once uh, once once I was at that grammar school. It was, you know, I was just got, I just basically rode this educational escalator. Um, And, you know, um, uh, nearly everyone went on to do uh, O levels. Uh, I I did a lot. And then then there were A levels. uh, And at A level, an A level results are what determine whether you go to to university. Your and, o levels are kind of like at sixteen or so, and your A levels right. are at eighteen or so. Is your final your final fling of the high school thing before heading off to university? Exactly that, yeah. And so I, I mean, two things going on. One, I was starting to I'd become a sort of good student, but also due that's a classic story due to the influence of a wonderful teacher at school. I fell in love with reading and literature, and all of this kind of stuff. Anyway, so went on, did A levels, and. I always want to boast about this because it it remains my greatest achievement. At the age of 18, I got three grade A A levels. Well done. Uh, And, you know, here here am I, nearly 65, and that's the only thing I've got to boast about. It's really quite (laughs) pitiful. And you, know, uh, you peak at eighteen. It's a it's a bit of a long road <laughs> after having your greatest success behind you, but still, you yeah, lived a good life nonetheless. You'd think I'd be invited on chat shows more to talk <laughs> about that. Um, anyway, and then I mean, so from my school, you know, I think eighty percent of people went to university, but um, there was some there was an additional thing. There was a really strong Oxbridge uh, thing mm. at, at this school, so I went. For, so I ended up going to Corpus Christi College, Oxford, mm-hmm. and um, did English there and uh, left uh, Corpus Christi Oxford with two feelings one I was absolutely finished with academia because it was so so well for for reasons we we might go on to discuss Um, and also feeling that I kind of read everything but that's only felt I'd read everything because I had such an inadequate sense of what everything meant right right and then there followed this period of just really intense intellectual development really when um i mean this was the i should say this is the the early 1980s period of mass unemployment in in britain Mm -hmm. and i left oxford knowing exactly what i wanted to do unlike some people who just leave university and drift i knew exactly what i wanted to do which was to sign on the dole (laughs) to (laughs) get unemployment and lest that make me sound like some sort of hopeless sponger it needs to be said that was generationally that was a completely respectable option i think that right. that singer the roland gift has said you've got to understand britain in the 1980s the dole supported a whole generation of would-be artists dancers right. writers this kind of stuff and it was during this period of living on the dole that i realized that i came across uh, a whole other kind of writing, um, the writing of John Berger is very important to me, yeah. and also this writer Raymond Williams, who was, you know, my God, he was a sort of professor at uh, at Cambridge. But what he did was expand my sense of that English literary tradition, which I'd read right. my way through very diligently, 
and provided a way of linking it up with a larger understanding of, I mean, to use the title of his first book, Culture and Society and Politics. And this was more than just, as it were, a new take on the curriculum. It was also a real revelation for me because this is um, this is something which might make me sound really stupid or it might just sound extraordinary. I mean, I'd grown up in this working class world, um, which was where we had almost no contact with middle class people except except sort of doctors who we were yeah. semi frightened of um, and teachers. Yeah. I mean, ditto. And then, you know, I just I thought I was just passing exams and liking reading. And then reading Raymond Williams just made me understand that I'd been made me understand the process that I'd been through, that there was much more to it than passing exams and literature. And, you know, it was I only really understood this process, I think, when I was about from about the age of uh, 23 onwards. And uh, really, I can't overestimate the extent to which, uh, um, you know, I owed so much, so much. I mean, I learned a lot about subjects from Raymond Williams, but I also, it's like he'd enabled me to understand my own autobiography. That's amazing. Well, I'm excited to hear what you're going to read from us. What, what two pages did you choose? How did you figure out what to read? Oh, it was a very easy choice. This is, okay. um, it was a very easy choice in one way in that this is for me, one of the most moving passages of literature that I know. And it's, uh, I was quite happy to, as it were, expand the idea of literature from just fiction or poetry to include nonfiction. Um, and on the other hand, it's quite a difficult passage to read because I'll have to exercise great self-control to read it without crying. I find it so intensely moving. And it's from... Uh, it's from a, uh, around about the, the uh, middle of the book. It's a chapter called Enclosures, Commons and Communities. And it's a passage which is really central to Williams's motivation in writing this book, where, like all of us, he was struck by the undoubted beauty of those famous English country houses, those stately mm. homes that we're so familiar with in literature and TV from Brideshead Revisited to Downton Abbey, this kind of stuff. Yeah. And he was also considering the poetic responses to these uh, um, undoubtedly beautiful uh, houses. And he wanted to, I mean, he's famously a polemical writer, but he's never a reductive one. So in this passage, he examines what these what these houses mean, what they look like, without ever sort of wanting to come up with some sort of mad sort of line of, uh, you know, tear them all down and build build a block of council flats instead. Right. That would be that would be mad. So it's his it's the way that he's able to um, try to reconcile both his um, love of and appreciation of these people and an understanding of 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 what these country houses mean these country houses by the way which are so often seen as a sort of some essence of england you know this uh, the country house idea has been one of britain's most successful exports in that you know people right. love these series like downton abbey and you know they come to england to to see these places to in, in large measure jeff it's a perfect setup i'm excited to hear the two pages over to you 
They had been there, indeed, from periods of direct military rule and occupation, but they had settled into a more social order. And it was in the 18th century, most visibly, that these strong points of a class spread in a close network over so much of Britain, with subsidiary effects on attitudes to landscape and to nature that we shall come to notice. But consider directly their social effect. Some of them had been there for centuries, visible triumphs over the ruin and labor of others. But the extraordinary phase of extension, rebuilding and enlarging, which occurred in the 18th century, represents a spectacular increase in the rate of exploitation. A good deal of it, of course, the profit of trade and of colonial exploitation. Much of it, however, the higher surplus value of a new and more efficient mode of production. It's fashionable to admire these extraordinarily numerous houses, the extended manors, the neoclassical mansions that lie so close in rural Britain. People still pass from village to village, guidebook in hand, to see the next and yet the next example, to look at the stones and the furniture, but stand at any point and look at that land. Look at what those fields, those streams, those woods even today produce. Think it through as labor and see how long and systematic the exploitation and seizure must have been to rear that many houses on that scale. See by contrast what any ancient isolated farm in uncounted generations of labor has managed to become by the efforts of any single real family, however prolonged. And then turn and look at what these other families, these systematic owners have accumulated and arrogantly declared. It isn't only that you know, looking at the land and then at the house, how much robbery and fraud there must have been for so long to produce that degree of disparity, that barbarous disproportion of scale. The working farms and cottages are so small beside them. What men really raise by their own efforts, or by such portion as is left to them in the ordinary scale of human achievement. What these great houses do is to break the scale by an act of will corresponding to their real and systematic exploitation of others. But look at the sights, the facades, the defining avenues and walls, the great iron gates and the guardian lodges. These were chosen for more than the effect from the inside out, where so many admirers, too many of them writers, have stood and shared the view, finding its prospect delightful. They were chosen also, you now see, for the other effect, from the outside looking in, a visible stamping of power, of displayed wealth and command, a social disproportion which was meant to impress and overawe. Much of the real profit of a more modern agriculture went not into productive investment, but into that explicit social declaration, 
a mutually competitive but still uniform exposition at every turn of an established and commanding class power. To stand in that shadow, even today, is to know what many generations of countrymen bitterly learned and were consciously taught, that these were the families, this the shape of the society. And when you then think of community, you will see modern community only in the welcome signs of some partial reclamation, the houses returned to some general use as a hospital or agricultural college. But you're just as likely to see the old kinds of power still declared in the surviving exploiters and in their modern relations, the corporate country house, the industrial seat, the ruling class school. Physically, they are there, the explicit forms of the long class society. But turn for a moment elsewhere to the villages that escaped their immediate presence, to the edges, the old commons still preserved in place names, to the hamlets where control was remote. It can make some difference as you go about every day to be out of sight of that explicit command. And this is so, I do not doubt, in many surviving precarious communities, the dispersed settlements of the West or some of the close villages of the East and Midlands, where no immediate house has so outgrown its neighbours that it's visibly altered the scale. It makes a real difference that in day-to-day -day relations, those other people and their commanding statements in stone are absent, or at least some welcome distance away. In some places still, an effective community of a local kind can survive in older terms, where small freeholders, tenants, craftsmen and labourers can succeed in being neighbours first and social classes only second. This must never be idealised, for at the points of decision, now as then, the class realities usually show through. But in many intervals, many periods of settlement, there is a kindness, a mutuality that still manages to flow. It is a matter of degree, as it was in the villages before and after enclosure. When the pressure of a system is great and is increasing, it matters to find a breathing space, a fortunate distance from the immediate and visible controls. What was drastically reduced by enclosures was just such a breathing space, a marginal day-to-day -day independence for many thousands of people. It is right to mourn that loss, but we must also look at it plainly. What happened was not so much enclosure, the method, but the more visible establishment of a long developing system which had taken and was to take several other forms. The many miles of new fences and walls, the new paper rights, were the formal declaration of where the power now lay. The economic system of landlord, tenant and labourer, which had been extending its hold since the 16th century, was now in explicit and assertive control. Community, to survive, had then to change its terms. Jeff, thank you. So Jeff, you've just read a piece that covers colonialism and class in a profound way. What's so moving about this passage for you? Um, I think it's, um, I mean, one of the um, famous strengths of Raymond Williams 
is that um, he refuses ever to simplify things. So I think built into the prose is this sort of endless piling on of qualifications and uh, mm. uh, in ever increasing complexity. But I think what's um, what's important for me is that he takes this essence of this sort of timeless essence of England that we can often uh, sort of that we've uh, that we we often feel, and historicizes it really. Yeah. And I think uh, at times there's a really simple kind of, um, there's a really simple message in here, you know, that wonderful sentence, very short sentence by his standards when he says, but think it through as labor. Mm. You know, how did these places, these beautiful places come into existence, you know, and what effect did they have on the, uh, you know, on the communities uh, around them? How did this book and this passage change your relationship to the society you were in? <laughs> yeah, do you know, I guess it's fair to say there was a lot of this about in the, in the, um, in the 1970s and 1980s. You know, a writer that I've mentioned, John Berger, who was very important to me. You'll remember that in the first episode of Ways of Seeing, his BBC series, he okay, goes nice. up to, uh, you know, he, um, he he looks at various sort of uh, uh, paintings and uh, he cuts out a part of a famous painting. And in another episode, he sort of um, slaps some graffiti on that famous painting uh, by Thomas Gainsborough of Mr. and Mrs. Andrew in her in their in their you know lovely sort of country country seat as it were and he just slaps on this bit of graffiti graffiti saying you know private property uh, you know trespassers keep out so yeah there was a lot of a lot of this kind of thing uh, going on and I, I think the crucial thing for me was uh, this enlargement of uh, my understanding of literature to see it as part of the uh, a larger uh, part of the uh, mm. of, of the uh, of the culture and, and and of politics how do you it's a question i want to ask you jeff there's something there's something about um how do you hold your relationship with the labor of your work now because <laughs> you know so much of this is around the exploitation of anonymous workers um, and what your passage meant to me was kind of going, what is my relationship to the capitalist system? And am I, uh, am I exploited or am I an exploiter? Mm. Um, I'm curious to know how you think about your labor. In this sense. Uh, yeah. Well, um, and I don't, I can't claim to be exploited at all. Uh, but then equally, nor do I think I'm ex exploiting anyone. One of the, uh, the nice things I think it seems to me about the writing life is that it's, uh, it's uh it's ethically a pretty uh it's a pretty clean way to to earn your money it uh, it does uh, you know it's it's um it's a it's a form actually of being self-sufficient in 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 a way uh, mm. I, I think um but i guess i would say also that one of the the writing life is full of surprises and you know if you asked me to list some of the writers who'd meant the most to me they would be obviously political writers like well Raymond Williams crucially yeah. John Berger these are the homegrown ones as it were E.P. Thompson um, but and then we could enlarge it to the sort of Europeans like Camus or whatever oh and I should have mentioned George Orwell yeah. and then you know what about my writing life in terms of my political engagement well I've ended up being an incredibly apolitical 
somewhat uh, solipsistic writer, it seems to me. And I think in a way, my admiration for this kind of writing has only increased because it's so contrary to the kind of uh, the kind of writer mm. that I've ended up being. I'm tempted to say through no fault of my own, right? <laughs> because I mean, it seems to me one is uh, it's it's surprising how little control you end up having over your the arc <laughs> of your of your of your yeah. writing life. I think another thing though that I would say about that Raymond Williams passage is, of course, it's a it's a you know he's writing from within the university, um, and it's um, it's literary criticism, but also there's such a distinctive uh, voice there. We were talking about voice earlier, and those kind of role. There's quite a sort of cadential kind of um, uh, there's a real kind of resonance to it. Uh, so mm. I think it's uh, as as much as the content of what Williams is saying, there's some beautiful quality to the, to, to the voice on the page. You know, one of the things you do, as well as being a writer, is you're the writer-in-residence at USC. Mm. I'm, I'm wondering what you feel the most important lesson is you strive to teach your students. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, do you know, it's a really, really simple, well, two really simple ones. Uh, one, I think I'm one of the most conservative teachers there, uh, in in, uh, and I'm always banging on to them about um, uh, uh, how um, writing, in in writing, expression is it can't happen unless you have a full, thorough command of all the things of grammar. I mean, that has to be the foundation on which mm. uh, writing is is built. And it's a real contrast to the days when I was a student, when there were no sort of writing classes. So many, there's a there's a great demand for doing cre creative writing for for self self expression, and uh, you know my you know so people want to know the students of course how do I become a writer and my very very. Uh, traditional response to this is uh, there's only one way you become a writer and it's to become a reader you just read and read and mm -hmm. read um, and uh, that is um, uh, that's something which uh, I'm always encouraging so I think some students in my classes are put off by the way that uh, they, they think they're signing up to do a class of writing and what they're getting is a great list of books uh, to <laughs> to be through. to be read yeah. and i think also there's this really important thing for me where when i was at university because i had such a you know this experience of falling in love with literature at school had been so important to me and my teacher was so wonderful and then when i went to university I realized that doing English, which I loved, I loved reading Wordsworth and Shelley and Shakespeare and Dickens and all this kind of stuff. Doing English at university meant, oh, doing criticism. Uh, it meant reading critics about these uh, these writers. And whereas, I mean, whereas it was fun reading Dickens, it was kind of boring reading a lot of this academic uh, criticism. Modern feminist interpretation of Dickens as its own. Uh, yeah, actually, back then there wasn't any of that. It was oh, yeah, just okay. it was boring in a in a much more it, it was boring in a in a more boring way, if you like. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then some years later, you know, I came across this uh, notion which was articulated by George Steiner, where he says, you know, actually the tradition of any art form adds up to a syllabus of enacted criticism. So in many ways, 
um, let some of the examples he gives, he says, you know, in many ways, Henry James is the portrait of a lady as a sort of essay on Middlemarch, or he talks about the way that Anna Karenin is a sort of essay on Flaubert's Madame Bovary. So what I've liked the idea of doing is trying to shrink the gap between uh, the writing and the commentary on it. And Mm. it's really striking how, I mean, to paraphrase Steiner, how, yeah, the the, uh, there is this, uh, well, the, another phrase of his, he talks about the way that this, um, the tradition of any art form, he says, is a syllabus of enacted criticism. So I'm right. always trying to get uh, get the students to read other writers on people who've gone before, as opposed to something which is very, very prevalent now, this kind of um, uh, sort of anonymous or impersonal, let's say, academic responses to, to, to writing. Right. I think if my memory serves me, George Steiner was really one of the very first people who did a kind of comparative literature PhD, kind of broke uh, broke across genres. Yeah, he 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 certainly did. Yes, yeah, and uh, you know, and he never lets you forget that he's uh, you know that he can speak six or seven language. You know, he <laughs> loves quoting quoting some. German word, yeah. and then you know, you know, how can I translate this? Well, the English simply will not do. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, it's been a very rich conversation with you. Thank you. I'm wondering, as a final question, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said between us? Oh, um, yeah, I think I would like to reaffirm Raymond Williams's importance. Um, he, he, you know, uh, I think he's not much read these days. And if he is read, he's read uh, still very much within the academy. And so Mm. I would like to make a case for Williams as a still as a vital living presence. And so I was reading from the country and the city. But, um, you know, the the best place to start without question for uh, uh, anyone interested in Raymond Williams is is his first book, Cult culture and society, which I think will be as eye-opening for anyone reading it today as it was for me when I read it uh, after leaving university in the early 1980s. I think Jeff's comment about how he became an original writer is profound by being incredibly susceptible to influences. Now, as soon as he said that, I realized that was true for me as well. I mean, I'd read an author, and not every author, but the ones that I loved, and immediately I wish I was able to write like that. I mean, just in the last few months, I've read John Green's, or reread John Green's Anthropocene Reviewed. I'm reading Martha Wells and her Murderbot Diary series, which is fantastic. Uh, Peter Carey, Australian author, his book Amnesia, and Emily Watson's new translation of The Iliad. Now, I appreciate that's a pretty eclectic list. There's a reason I do a podcast about books. I love reading. But the truth is, when I read John Green and Peter Carey and Martha Wells and Emily Watson, well, I want to be able to write like all of them. I want to be able to think like all of them. I want to know what they know. I mean, when I'm thinking about my next project, I'm just taking my best guess as to whether it's the worthy goal I want to pursue, whether it's something thrilling and important and daunting. I don't worry too much about is this original or different or the same what matters to me and perhaps to you too is to keep my mind and heart open to the world to seek out the edges to find new things to puzzle about and marvel over to nurture my curiosity so i can keep rediscovering my ignorance 
If you enjoyed this conversation with Jeffrey, um, I've got a couple of other pods that you might like to dip into. Number 28, How to Resist Conformity, Julie Lifecott-Hames, a wonderful person. Um, and number 42, Nicola Raini, Cooperation and Competition. And she read The Origin of the Species, so there's, a, there's an influence for you. If you want to find out more about Jeffrey's work, jeffdyer.com is his website. It's got a good British spelling of Jeff, G-E-O-F-F-D-Y-E-R.com. All the books are there, and you'll find out more about him as well. Thank you for listening. Thank you for loving it. Thank you for passing the word on. I appreciate all of that. You're awesome and you're doing great.